Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Thank you for coming. And if you're still sitting out in the back, well, there's still, I think, a room for another couple of people to come in. Hopefully my voice will carry. It's hard not to hear me. This is a time of year when many of us take stock, reflect on what uh, meaning or purpose has been established in our lives through our actions, through our endeavors. And uh, there's actually real benefit to that. I was looking through uh, a number of clinical studies that show that there are many positive ramifications for reviewing, taking stock, uh, having a detached uh, perspective on what one's undertakings have amounted to. The positive ramifications are associated with when you feel that your life has an underlying meaning or purpose, uh, not only is it positively associated with longevity, reduced risk of Alzheimer's, reduced risk of heart attack and stroke, but according to a number of studies, there's a, a books actually about psychological ramifications of looking at one's life in terms of meaning. One book, I was Spiritual Thoughts Coping with a Sense of Coherence, Making Sense by Onsworth and Chambers, and uh, Social, Psychological, and Existential Well-Being. But one positive association is with resilience. The more you have a sense of purpose or meaning, where you have a feeling that your actions have a coherence to them, you have a greater sense of ability to bounce back after setback. If you don't have a sense of a higher purpose, simply beyond paying the rent and your survival, the interpreter region of the brain, which is what creates all the inner chatter, generally will create what clinical psychologists call a disordered self-referential thought. In other words, I suck, nothing's going to work out, I'll never find love or happiness. Though when we don't have a sense of purpose, when there's a setback, all of the egoic functions collapse back around the sense of self and we create a story about how we're not doing very well in our lives. But if you have a sense of purpose, the investment in the world doesn't collapse back around your sense of self or identity. It doesn't create a narrative about who you are. You have the ability to say, okay, well, this sucks, but I still have this goal, this direction, this endeavor that's meaning-making in my life. When people don't have a a purpose, there's a failure to regulate a part, a circuit known as the default mode network. And that circuit, (laughs) the railroad of suffering in your brain, it goes through very key regions like the, uh, what is the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, 
all the way back to your amygdala. After a setback or after a disappointing experience, if we don't have a sense of purpose, we can't regulate that circuit at all. There's two ways that we can go about setting goals and making meaning, interpreting our life in a way that creates a sense of why I'm here. What does my life amount to? And directions. Two arenas of interpretation. One is essentially the product of the left hemisphere of the brain. While most of the activities in our life involve both hemispheres, but certain activities use one hemisphere or another far more dominantly. And when it comes to the left brain, that's the, or the left hemisphere, that is an operation when we make plans and when we set goals and when we uh, come up with narratives. It's also the left hemisphere is far more prevalent during our waking hours. The left brain is associated with self-reliance. It's associated with uh, collecting resources to make us feel protected. And it's all about raising our tribal status, looking good, uh, setting ourselves apart, coming up with a story that creates a sense of a positive reputation. The left hemisphere is associated with dopamine. When we are engaged in a lot of reflection through thought, it tends to focus on financial security, our individual achievement, tools we've acquired, our sexual exploits, our physical appearance. A classic left hemispheric approach to life is when you travel, it doesn't really care about getting the experience of a new culture. It wants to go up to a famous location like Machu Picchu and have a selfie that we can show to our friends so that our tribal status can be elevated. A left brain perspective on learning is that we learn to get some insight that will give us an advantage over other people, that will make us smarter, more secure, more enviable. When we engage in creative activities, the left brain really cares about what other people will think about our, the products of our creativity. It seeks fame and recognition, but it doesn't really enjoy the process of creating the work. Dopamine, which is the essentially the currency of the left brain, is our reward neurotransmitter. And it is there to motivate us to achieve goals in our life. If you think about in the past, when we were hunter-gatherers, it was the left brain that encouraged you to go out and accumulate, gather food and tools and resources. And then when you'd come home and bond with the six or seven other adults that you would spend your life with, your bright brain would reward you with an entirely different set of neurotransmitters, and it would care about entirely different qualities in your life. So dopamine is released not when we accomplish anything, interestingly enough. It's actually released as we are working towards something in the future. 
It's not actually there to reward you for finding the coat that's on sale. It actually gets you high while you're shopping. It doesn't actually make you feel great after you've eaten the cupcake. It makes you feel great when you're staring in the shop window at the donuts. There isn't a purpose, evolutionarily speaking, for dopamine to reward us after we've accomplished something. By design, dopamine synaptically wears out and we're stuck. We need more. So we're not satisfied for very long when we walk out of an Apple store with a shiny new iPad or uh, iPhone. While we were shopping, while we were looking for a deal, we were excited. We were feeling just that rush and that sense of power that keeps being released until, interestingly enough, we accomplish the task and then it dwindles off. So setting our goals or our sense of purpose on achievements and solo endeavors and becoming more self-reliant or more financially self-sufficient or achieving something that will set us apart, while we're working towards it, it will release some dopamine and we'll feel this positive anticipation. But when we accomplish the task, the rewards are actually very fleeting. About a year ago, I had a book published and the I could remember very the excitement that was of um, getting this book, which was kind of accumulation of 15 years of teaching. It was kind of something that I'd worked very hard towards. But when the book actually came out, it was like, Bleh. <laughs> there was, you know, they, you would think there would be this lasting feeling of accomplishment. But no, I mean, maybe I just don't get that excited about these things, but it almost immediately depleted. Uh, so we know intellectually from our own experience by the time we're adults that if we pass a bar exam or have a screenplay turned into a film or release a record or we write a book, we know that it's not going to be the be end end all, uh, that it will not give our life a lasting sense of purpose or meaning. And yet, because of the nature of dopamine and the fact that left hemispheric functions dominate planning and dominate narrative functions and dominate conscious uh, processing, we still tend to give a lot of thought about when I accomplish this, when I get this thing done. It's very future oriented. And as the Buddha said, if we follow this, we will forever be waiting for the next thing and then the next thing in our life to bring us lasting happiness and meaning, <coughs> which will never arrive. We start out, well, I can't, I shouldn't say we, I'm just going to use my life. It started out with like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Then it went to travel. Then it went to career. None of those things brought me any lasting sense of meaning or purpose. And then eventually, even my spiritual practice, at first, that was governed by this idea that one day in Buddhist practice and study, I would uncover some great truth that would give me this aha moment. And then after that, I would never have to struggle again. 
It would give me that vital thing that I was missing all my life. And it just never works out when we try to view uh, happiness as a sense that there's something in the future that I need to accomplish. Because that very action of saying there's something incomplete about my life right now, that is actually never alleviated by doing something uh, in the future or as a narrative project. But there's another approach to creating meaning in our life direction. We have, uh, while the left hemisphere is all concerned about our reputation in the tribe, setting ourselves apart, achieving something that makes us look really great, or accumulating tools and resources such as finances that creates a sense of uh, security, the right hemisphere is entirely different and what it pays attention to and what it's concerned about. It is actually concerned about security through bonding right now with other people for a sense of emotional security. It never looks at life in terms of there's something missing, it's sim or at least missing in the sense that in the future I can get a hold of something externally that will make me achieve a sense of power. It doesn't care about that. It's actually at a disadvantage because it communicates its concerns about how well connected we are with loved ones, friends, and community. It communicates these needs through our emotions, through nonverbal cues. It doesn't communicate with us through essentially inner chatter or thought which is by and large co-opted by the left brain. Your emotions are not in any way lesser than your so-called rational thought. In fact, that's a deeply uh, mistaken interpretation of the human mind. The right hemisphere, which is responsible for our emotions and our feelings, in fact, has the most efficient neural circuits and the fastest of the neural processing in the brain. It actually is far faster. It's like a five generation beyond the left hemispheric, which is a essentially a sequential processor. Your right hemisphere cares about the quality of your bonds with the world around you, with your friends, it will reward you with positive emotions, joy, a sense of elation, a sense of happiness when other people see you, pay attention to you, co-regulate your emotions by sitting with you and listening as you non-verbally just show someone how you feel. You're right. Anterior cingulate cortex will punish us if we engage in selfish antisocial acts, if our life doesn't in any way benefit or in, play a pro-tribal purpose. People can make 
or accumulate or achieve a lot in their life, but if they don't see their endeavors directly paying off in terms of someone else's well-being, depression will not be alleviated. Anxiety will not be alleviated. Serotonin, which is the currency of the right brain, unlike dopamine of the left, serotonin will not be released and you will not feel a sense of security. In fact, insecurity will be the result. There are countless examples of famous individuals who achieved an enormous amount in their life and yet killed themselves. This year we've had some tragedies of famous figures who didn't feel that their endeavors were directly helping people. And so there's that sense of once again, like in their childhood, there's a sense of being cut off, not being secure, no way to switch off the default mode network, no way to quiet the inner chatter about oneself. So the Buddha was aware of this and he his entire teaching of karma is about aligning ourselves in a way that will create long-term positive emotions, positive feelings, a sense of well-being, not in terms of a story that we carry around about what sets us apart, but a feeling of being securely connected, of being of benefit to others. When you feel bonded, research by Naomi Eisenberger and uh, Matthew Lieberman, two clinical neuropsychologists, show that your anterior cingulate cortex releases endorphins, so you actually feel good in your own body. You actually feel a sense of elation, but that is lasting. It doesn't synaptically reuptake quickly like dopamine. It's far more lasting when you do something that concretizes your bonds with others. To bond in a way that uh, triggers the neuroceptive process of positive emotional states, you don't have to say something clever. You don't have to be funny. You don't have to be witty. You don't have to be deeply intelligent. None of that is in any way the underpinnings of the emotional rewards of bonding. When we bond, what happens is someone sits with us and we get vulnerable and they simply keep their attention on us. And through that, there's this amazing process where we limbically co-regulate. They take in our state of being, I take in that person's state of being, and we sink, our breaths sink, our autonomic nervous systems sink, our heart rates sink, our circulations sink together, and we regulate each other down from a state of distress. And we don't have to be smart, clever, funny, or witty. And none of it can be done by text on a smartphone. <laughs> because it's all nonverbal. And sending emoticons will just not do the trick. <laughs> the epidemic of emotional isolation that is uh, endemic to our culture is directly due to our reliance on asynchronous text-based communication. But that's just... Uh, an old geezer's uh, <laughs> toss-in.
Interestingly enough, the left brain is associated with what's called terror management. The left hemisphere loves and finds purpose in activities that distract it from the recognition or the mental reminder that we're all going to die. Turns out the left brain doesn't like the fact that I am going to die. In fact, it will do pretty much anything to not have that reflection in mind. The problem is, the more we chase after endeavors that create a sense of power or a sense of uh, a tribal boost to our reputation and try to distract ourselves from death, the greater the underlying repressed latent acknowledgement or memory of our death is fighting against its repression and it hogs cognitive resources. It's impossible to forget our mortality. We've all lost people, and that is deeply embedded in the right brain. And the more the left brain tries to distract ourselves through dopamine rewards, the more that we essentially deplete our cognitive resources. There's a famous study, being present in the face of existential threat, uh, suppressing awareness of death not only depletes cognitive resources, but it makes us defensive. People who are mindful of death, they found, are mindful, uh, who have a meditation practice, who develop awareness of emotional needs, in fact, become very cognizant of their own mortality, and they use that for beneficial purposes. It might seem like it's a bummer, but, in fact, you cannot make any informed choice in your life without a recognition of your own mortality. Any decision we make in without considering how much time this will take from the depleting resource of our existence, any decision we make... Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening without a reference to the fact that we do not have limitless time, that every single choice has essentially a ramification in terms of it literally, not only our actions create our sense of meaning, but it also depletes from the most vital resource we have. The Buddha said that it was the realization, which was a horror, he uses the word samvega, it was a feeling of disgust that motivated his spiritual practice. And the feeling of disgust was that he was living his life without reflecting on his own mortality, the fact that he would die, that everyone around him that he cared about would die, and that none of the people nor himself were living with this recollection in mind, and therefore 
all of their choices were suspect. Heidegger, <laughs> who was a Nazi, but... <laughs> or at least he didn't fight against the Nazis. But he was a famous existentialist philosopher and he was a pretty smart guy. And he noted that uh, it is the awareness of our own mortality that propels us to make authentic choices in our life. It's not until we have very often uh, a brush with our own mortality that people actually stop and realize that chasing after financial security or chasing after esteem or chasing after some uh, achievement that that they have latched onto as a compensation for early attachment wounds in childhood, but will not actually make them feel better in the long term. It's when we take stock after we've had a near-death experience. I don't really want to have to do it that way. That's why I've done volunteer work at hospice and why I, for the last 11 years I've trained hospice workers and why I spent so many years in uh, hospice uh volunteering, basically most of the time, visiting people that I knew who were dying. It creates an immediate sense of direction in one's life. Because when you leave the bedside of someone who is uh, essentially in the process of dying, it's impossible to get caught up in what do other people think about me, some petty little argument, some uh, unresolved conflict. And it's certainly impossible to get caught up with making decisions in terms of thinking first and foremost about their financial ramifications. It was after um, a combination of 9-11 uh, and... Um, uh, my mother's uh, mortality, which I was facing, that I decided to leave a well-paying job and become an itinerant Buddhist teacher. <laughs> that was not a financially responsible decision by any means, but it is responsible for my happiness in life. And it entirely came about because I was face-to-face -face with death. There was no way around it. When we reflect on death, it turns out we make priorities and we set a purpose for our life that's very different than when we try to conceptualize it in terms of what I need to accomplish. When people are... Uh, in the aftermath of an attachment loss of a loved one, they very often focus on living in the here and now because they realize how precious the, the value of each moment and each day and the, just the, the, the essential nature of just existence on the basis of just being aware. They prioritize connecting with loved ones as a way to reduce their sense of loneliness and emotional isolation. Altruism becomes important. 
not for a sense of legacy, which is what the left hemisphere cares about, but as a sense of building a connection and the feelings of well-being that are established when we see that someone is benefiting from our endeavors. And we focus most essentially on being honest and disclosing our feelings rather than answering every question about how we're doing with the word fine. The British National Health Service released a five-step plan for mental well-being, and it was based on numerous clinical studies. Connect with friends and supportive family members, giving to others, volunteerism, physical exercise. I didn't mention that. <laughs> I can only throw so much at you. Plus, if I throw that and you say, that, fuck that. All right. I knew he was crazy, then he mentioned the physical exercise. Lifelong learning, not learning to acquire some insight that allows us to basically close all the learning, but the pro enjoying the process of developing new schools, new skills or insights. And five, mindfulness, awareness of life itself. The Buddha said, every practitioner should constantly reflect on a daily basis. I am subject to aging. I will become sick. I will experience death. I will die. I will be separated from all that is dear. And my life only amounts to my beneficial actions. So finally, before we do the fame, the uh, Buddha's death reflection as a way to try to establish a sense of meaning or purpose, what is the underlying principle that will give us a sense of resilience and strength to overcome setbacks and what will give all of our choices a coherence? It's the Mar Marana Sati meditation. I'd like to note before we sit that um, there's a big difference between a resolution and an intention. We hear about New Year's Eve resolutions and they are terrible ideas. 90% in one study are abandoned by the first three weeks in January. Resolutions are based on the word resolve and they imply setting one's willpower to achieve a specific set of targets. I'm going to lose five pounds. I'm going to go to the gym every day. I will meditate 10 minutes every day. The problem with a resolution is the moment we don't hit a target, we feel permitted to give up. And most of the targets we set are unreasonable anyway. An intention, on the other hand, is based on the, the Latin root is to turn your attention to something. It has no specific goal. It has no target. It's simply a promise that you'll pay attention to something. So we don't set resolutions. We set intentions in Buddhism. And intentions mean simply, I will pay attention to how I consume this substance, or how I spend my free time, or 
how I consume uh, uh, media or how I uh, eat or how I whatever you want. You're not promising yourself you'll meet any specific target. You're not setting any agenda and you're not creating any uh, essentially paddle to hit yourself with if you don't reach any intention because there are any goal because you're not setting any goals. You're simply deciding that you want to become mindfully aware of something in your life and you really can't fail at that. So we're now going to sit for a little while and we're going to put everything that we've heard into practice. We're going to find a true sense of meaning. And from that meaning, you can set intentions. So closing the eyes, And let's just take a few breaths just to relax a vital set of nerves in the body known as the vagal vagus. We're just going to use some very basic tools to try to reset the nervous system to a state of approach, relax, open. So take a full in-breath through the nose and while you do so, lift your shoulders if you like up towards your ears, like you're lifting two heavy bags towards a check-in counter at an airport and you just, as you breathe out, drop the bags onto the the scale and just allow your shoulders to gently pull back so it opens up your chest and that's a major area of that the spinal nerve cluster there when you open up your chest it basically is putting you into a broaden and build state makes you feel confident less threatened. Now let's take another full in-breath and this time either push out your belly or pull it in, but just create a really awkward tightness in the belly, whatever makes sense while you're breathing in. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly, the dorsal vagal nerve reaches its apex there. So when your belly's relaxed and your chest is open, you're sending a message through this highway of essentially the, the nerves that create all of our felt emotions. You're sending a message back up to your brain saying, I'm safe. 
soft belly, open chest, long exhalations. Finally, for the third breath, squinch all the muscles in your face, tight jaw, squinched eyes, just furrowed brow, pinched nose, ugly little face, and then as you breathe out, Relaxing the jaw, softening the micro-muscles around the eyes. That's great. And that's the highest part of the vagal system, the social part. Relaxed face, open. Try to Keep the corners of the mouth as far apart. So just allow the breath to come to a rhythm that continues the process of establishing ease. You can also listen to the sound of the fan and the rain. And every time your mind drifts away to a memory or an unresolved issue in your life or to thoughts about events in the future, just gently release and return back to the sensations that are actually occurring right now. Just see if you can be with the feeling of your body breathing and the sounds surrounding you. And try to keep all those three areas, the shoulders, the belly, and the face, relaxed, the chest open, and the out-breath really long.
So take a nice full in-breath and as you breathe in, in your mind think the thought, the spiritual truth, I am subject to aging. And as you breathe out, this body will become old. Breathing in, I am subject to illness. Breathing out, this body will become sick. Breathing in, I am subject to death. Breathing out, this body will die. Breathing in and out, I will be separated from all that is dear to me. And for the fifth breath, my life is shaped entirely by my actions. To those actions, I will be heir. They define me. <coughs> Breathing in. One day this breath could be my last. Breathing in, one day this body will stop breathing, breathing out. See if you can really touch base with nothing is guaranteed in a physical body. Now I'd like you to drop into the recesses of your mind a question. When was I happiest? And don't try to think up the answer, just allow any image or memory to surface that you associate with the happiest time or times of your life. When was I happiest? What comes to mind? When was I happiest?
Just allow whatever surfaces to surface. And if a memory appears, ask yourself what you were doing. Were you connecting with a friend? Were you exploring the world with confidence? Were you helping someone? Were you doing something that gives your your life creative spontaneity? When you think of when you were happiest, what action were you undertaking? Another question, have I lived the life I wanted to live? Am I living the life I wanted to live?
If so, why? What jumps to mind? And if not, why? What is missing? Knowing or having a sense of what makes me feel happiness. Knowing which gives me a sense of having lived the life I wanted to live. Which choices that I've made make me feel proudest. And knowing the times that I was happiest and the choices that I feel proud of, what responsibilities in my life can I let go of? What am I caring about all the time? that brings me little happiness, little sense of purpose. 
So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and try to open your eyes as slowly as possible and try to bring with you any feeling or reflection that might be of value as you move forward. into this new year.